I know our brother Luke just prayed for us, but we can't have too much prayer. So uh, would you join me? And we'll go back to prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these glorious truths we were able to sing this morning. Uh, just to celebrate and rejoice in who you are and what you've done. And now I pray for our time together uh, around your word. Um, Open it up to us. Uh, Help it be clear to us. But most importantly, Lord, we ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be working among us. Um, Sanctify this place today. May he be working in our midst, uh, exposing these hearts of ours, exposing our struggles, exposing our doubts, our fears, our weakness. And as he delights to do, pointing us to Jesus. Minister to these hearts of ours with the glorious truth of the gospel. Let us see so clearly, Lord Jesus, who we are. These things we pray in your name. Amen. Well, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 6, we come across one of the the more powerful scenes in the scripture. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. There, Isaiah the prophet, he tells us, In the year of King Uzziah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah says. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. At the voice of him who called, and the house, the temple, was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah tells us, I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There, as Isaiah beholds the holiness of God, He is undone. He is devastatingly aware of his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of those around him. And last Wednesday, I had a moment kind of like that. Um, Now, I wasn't in the temple, (laughs) and I didn't actually behold the holiness of God with my own eyeballs like Isaiah did. Instead, I, I was sitting out on my back patio, uh, enjoying the sunshine of the day, taking a break from my sermon study to, to read through a book I've been working through kind of slowly uh, lately. And the book that I was reading is written by a minister named Zach Eswine, and it's titled The Imperfect Pastor. The Imperfect Pastor. And as I was reading that book, it was laying my heart bare. Um, it was exposing my weakness my selfishness, my sin. As the brother who's writing that book, as he was sharing his own struggles, I was seeing mine as well. And I was seeing my sinfulness in the light of Jesus, our perfect pastor, in the light of his holiness. And it was undoing me. And by God's grace, that's been happening to me a lot lately. (laughs) God has been showing me the reality of my own sinfulness, my own, to borrow Isaiah's terminology, uncleanness. There are some days when I am so aware of my own failure. Days when I'm just humbled, laid out uh, by the reality of my own sin. Let me share with you a little bit of what I mean. (laughs) Let me tell you a little bit about Ryan. Ryan is a selfish individual. Ryan is a selfish individual. I find myself battling selfishness morning, noon, and night. I have this tendency 
to live like the world revolves around me and my wants, my, my plans for how the universe should unfold. And I know this about myself because I get angry. I get moody. I get critical of others when I don't get my way. And that critical spirit is something that it feels like it is always laying in wait, right beneath my tongue, ready to pounce like a crouching tiger. And here's the thing. In my mind, I think, I'm just going to help this person. I'm just going to point out how my way is probably the better way. But that arrogant judgment of the work of other people can become a constant stream flowing out of this mouth of mine. A mouth that is too quick to speak criticism and too slow to praise. A mouth that reveals that my hope is often in my own ability to fix a situation instead of entrusting God's sovereignty over a situation. And my selfishness is also on display in my lust-filled heart. I want what I want. I want what I want. I want to spend my time the way I want to spend it. I want my wife and my daughters to behave like I want them to behave. I want a comfy, easy, pleasure-filled life. And my heart often grows restless and resentful when I don't get it. I want people to be impressed with me. Never to criticize me. To always say great things about me. And I know this about myself. And I battle this within myself. But here's the thing. Even in my fighting against the flesh, I grow slothful and lazy. I get discouraged. I get weary. There are moments when I'd rather do anything but pray and read the word. There are moments when my selfish heart just wants to give up the fight. Or or wait to fight until it gets a lot easier. I am a selfish individual. And I am very aware, I'm very awake to that reality. But here's the thing. Not only do I see my own selfish sinfulness, as your pastor, I see yours too. As your pastor, I see yours too. As your pastor, I see you. I see you on your good days, when you exercise faith and walk in grace and show compassion to one another. And I see the other days. As your pastor, I get to see your selfishness. I see when you favor yourself, your comforts, your desires over those of your brothers and sisters here at RBC. As your pastor, I hear your criticisms of your brothers and sisters here at RBC. I hear how you didn't like what that person did or how this other person acted or how so-and-so didn't act. I hear when you criticize your spouse. I hear about your struggles with your children. I hear when you speak from the flesh, just like when I speak from the flesh. And I feel the pressure of your lust for other things. Um, Some of you, at times, act like you're pretty unhappy with your life. Some of you believe that if, if things would only be the way that you want, then you'd find happiness. And sometimes you come to me uh, hoping that I can make that happen. Like I know some magic formula that could somehow change things in your life. And and honestly, there are a lot of days when I do wish I knew that formula. (laughs) I wish I could play the sovereign and make everything in your life the way it should be. And there are days that I feel that way as your pastor. Because as your pastor, I also witness your weariness. I see you struggling as we live together in this sin-cursed world. And I know that some of you are tired, you are frustrated, and you're so discouraged because of it. I empathize with you because there are days when I feel that way too. And that's all that was hitting me this last Wednesday. I can tell you it was hitting me like an avalanche. I was feeling Isaiah's lament. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Sitting on my back patio in the sunshine, I was so aware of the sinfulness of all of us. And I was struggling with it. I was actually on the verge of weeping over it, over the immensity of feeling like there are so many things that I need to fix in myself, 
How then can I help anybody else? And I know that you need help. And I say that in love. But in those moments, those moments when we are acutely aware of our sin and the sin of others, it can lead us to ask the question, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? And honestly, that's the way I was feeling this last Wednesday. I was feeling undone. I was feeling overwhelmed. I was feeling like there was just this avalanche crashing down upon my heart. And in one sense, that's a good place to be. It's good to see the reality of our sinfulness. Not living ignorant of the, the chasm between who we are and the holy people that we're called to be. In one sense, that's a good place to be. However, it can also be a dangerous place to be. And it can become dangerous because when we see our own sin and we see the sin of one another, we can grow frustrated and discouraged and despairing over the immensity of it all. And this happens. This, this despair, it happens. It happens in churches, it happens in families, it happens in marriages, it happens in friendships. And part of the reason why we grow so despairing is that we, in that moment, we respond like the answer to our frustration, the answer to our discouragement, the answer to our despair is simply try harder. Try harder. We find ourselves in that difficult place of, of seeing the avalanche of sin, and then we end up running to the wrong hope. Try harder. We think, well, I'll just work really hard and get my act together. I'll just stop being selfish. I'll just stop being critical. I'll just stop being slothful. Or, or we look at each other and we say, if you would just stop doing all those things, then I could have some hope. But the reality that as Christians, our hope isn't found in try harder. Our hope is not found in try harder. It's found in something so much better than that. And God brought that truth to my heart this last Wednesday as I had that woe is me moment on the back patio. In the midst of feeling overwhelmed by the reality of my sin and yours, in the midst of that avalanche experience that almost had me in tears, God reminded me, he reminded me of what I had just been studying in the book of Galatians. So go ahead and turn over now to the book of Galatians, New Testament book of Galatians and chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And as you're turning to Galatians 4, let me remind you that if there was ever a man who could have felt overwhelmed by the avalanche of sin, it was the author of Galatians, the Apostle Paul. And I say that first because Paul was a man who was very much aware of his own sin and failure. He was very much aware of his own sin and failure. Over in the book of Romans, in chapter 7, verse 24, Paul describes himself as a wretched man. A wretched man that I am, he says. And in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15, Paul describes himself as the foremost of sinners, the chief of sinners. And what I always find fascinating about that text is that Paul doesn't say, I was the foremost, past tense. He says, I am the foremost. Paul knew the wretchedness, the wretched sinfulness of his own heart. And Paul also knew the struggle of pastoring sinful people. Now Paul, and I want to make sure we're clear on this, very much unlike yours truly, Paul pastored some pretty difficult congregations. Although, yes, we're all sinners here. You as a congregation, you are a blessing to pastor. But Paul knew some difficult ministry. He dealt with the church at Corinth. He helped Titus deal with the the folks on the island of Crete, and that was not an easy crowd. And early in Paul's ministry, he dealt with these Galatians. Now remember, this book of Galatians, it's one of the earliest of the Pauline epistles, maybe the first. And in it, he shares his struggles, his intense surprise at what these Galatians were up to. Remember, back in the opening of the letter, in chapter 1, verse 6, he writes this. I am astonished, he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Chapter 3, verse 1, we saw this. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says to them, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
And then here in chapter 4, down in verse 20, look, at, he says in verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am, what, perplexed. I'm perplexed about you. You see, these Galatian Christians were behaving in some very unchristian ways. And Paul is astonished. He is perplexed. He is frustrated by their approach. However, instead of writing to them and saying, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with us sinners? We just need to try harder. Instead of that, Paul points them and us to a different approach. He points to our identity. Our identity. Yes, we are sinners. We are those who sin. But we are sinners who have been given a brand new identity through the grace of God. And that's what Paul's laying out here in chapter 4. He's helping these struggling Galatians to see who they truly are and then challenging them to live out of that identity. See who you are and then live out of that new identity. And that's where our hope is found as Christians. That's the remedy to our moments of avalanche, our moments of frustration, our moments of discouragement and despair, our woe is me moments. Our hope is found in seeing who we are in spite of who we are. Our hope is found in seeing who we are in spite of who we are. Or to put it another way, as Christians, we need to live out of who we are in spite of who we are. We need to live out of our new identity in Christ in spite of the reality of our sinfulness. We need to see who we are in spite of who we are. And that's what Paul shows the Galatians here in the opening verses of chapter 4. Specifically here in in verse 5, Paul shows the Galatians that as Christians, we are those who've been redeemed and we are those who've been adopted. We're those who've been redeemed and those who've been adopted. And this is who we are, brothers and sisters. You have to understand. This is who we are even as we struggle with sin. He's telling the Galatians this and they didn't have their act together. This is who we are even as we struggle with sin. Even as we struggle with our sin, we are the redeemed. We are the redeemed. We are redeemed from living under the bondage of the law and the judgment that comes with it. That's what Paul wants these Galatians to grasp. He really wants them to comprehend our redemption. And so starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, he unpacks this redemption. And he begins by showing what we've been redeemed from. From what are we redeemed? Well, well, Paul explains that we are redeemed from the bondage brought about by our immaturity. The bondage brought about by our immaturity. Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4. Paul writes, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. See, Paul here, he's using an illustration from the contemporary culture to teach these Galatians about redemption. <laughs> and in that culture, we talked about this before, but in that culture, when, when the son of a wealthy family was a child, even though that son would eventually inherit everything, when he was a child, he wasn't free to enjoy it. Instead, he and his inheritance were under guardians and managers. Paul says in reality, he's no different than a slave. Someone was telling him where to go, what to do, when to do it. And that was that son's reality because he was a child. He was under bondage because he was immature. His immaturity demanded oversight. It demanded submission. And Paul says that there was a time when we were in the same boat. We're in the same boat. As we saw a few weeks ago when when Paul writes, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. Paul there is talking about life under the law. Life under the law. You see, God's law comes into our life like the ABCs. It's the elementary principles of how life works in this world. It's the elementary principles. The law teaches us about who God is, who we are, it exposes our sin, and that we need a Savior. The law gives us rules to guide us. It gives us things to challenge us, things to limit us. But, but most specifically, the law comes along and it exposes our inability. It exposes our sinfulness. Paul said back in chapter 3 of Galatians, the law imprisons us. It imprisons us under condemnation. You see, before the law, under the law, we stand as sinners. We're lawbreakers, condemned before holy God. We we are stuck in prison. We're 
We're stuck in the, the grammar school of the law. Like Isaiah, confronted with our own unholiness before holy God. Under the law, we are in bondage to our woe is me moment. And we're in bondage. We need to understand this. We're in bondage because the law can't save us. The law can't rescue us from that woe is me moment. It can't remove our condemnation. The law exposes our sin, but it can't save us from it. The law exposes our sin, but it can't save us from it. Praise God there's someone who can. Amen? Praise God there's someone who can. And that's, that's what Paul hits on next. In, in verse 4 here, Paul addresses the through what question of our redemption. From what are we redeemed? From the condemnation of life in the grammar school of the law. Life under the judgment of the law. But how are we redeemed? What redeems us? This here, this question is where the Galatians were so confused. And we can be too. You see, the Galatians were being taught that they needed to look to themselves. They needed to look to their own law-keeping ability in order to rescue themselves from their own sinfulness, their own woe-is-me state. They thought if they, if they just followed the right rules, if they just kept the right laws, if they just tried harder then they could overcome their sinful plight and somehow earn God's affection and favor. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we can approach the Christian life the same way too. We can approach the Christian life the same way too. When we feel the frustration over our sin or the sin of others, we can be tempted to run to our own power and our own effort to somehow try to fix it. We can try to pull ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps and rescue ourselves from the condemnation that we feel. What I mean by this is we can be tempted to look to ourselves for our hope. Amen? We can be tempted to look to ourselves for our hope. But again, Paul shows us something so much better. Something so much better. He points to true redemption from condemnation. Not through our works, but through the works of another. Look at what he writes in verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Paul tells us that we are redeemed through the Father's plan. God the Father had a plan for us. He he had a plan for ending our time in the grammar school of the law. A plan for redeeming us from our condemnation under our sin. And when everything was perfect, when the fullness of time had come, the Father's plan was then accomplished by his glorious Son. The Father's plan, our, our rescue from judgment and condemnation and life under law, it wasn't riding on you or me getting our act together. Praise Jesus. Instead, it was all riding on Jesus, on the Son of God. It was all riding on, as we saw last week, one who is fully God. Paul says, God sent forth his Son. He sent him. He sent him from somewhere. And last Sunday, we looked at what that somewhere was. It was eternity past, where God the Son was dwelling with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in a relationship of pure, divine, glorious love. But when the fullness of time had come, God the Son came to redeem us. And he came to redeem us by becoming one of us. He was born of woman. He took upon himself our true humanity. He became like us in every way, except Except sin. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we needed. That's exactly what we needed. We needed one who was born of woman and also born under the law, as Paul says here. We needed one who was like us to enter into that life under the law, enter into that bondage with us, and to help us free us from that bondage. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Again, as we saw last Sunday, Jesus, just like Adam before him, became our representative under the law. And so for all his own, for all those who are in Christ, just like we were once in Adam, Christ came and he kept the law. He obeyed all of the rules. He observed all the statutes. He fulfilled the law. But not only did he obey it all for us, he then took the penalty, the judgment of the law that was upon us. He stepped into our place of condemnation. And on the cross, he truly, really did suffer what we should have 
suffered under the law. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8.1, right after Paul has spoke of himself as, as wretched, Paul can write in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? We know the verse. Sometimes we have a hard time really believing that. Amen? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was the Father's plan. The Father's plan was to set us free from the law through His glorious Son. And that brings us to the so what of redemption. We are redeemed from what? From life under the law with the judgment and the condemnation that it brings. We are redeemed through what? Through the Father's plan centered upon His glorious Son. And we are redeemed so what? So that we would no longer live as slaves under the law, feeling perpetually defeated and discouraged by our sin. So what? So that we would no longer live as slaves under the law, feeling perpetually defeated and discouraged by our sin. We have been rescued from that. You see this word, redeem, that Paul uses here in verse 5. It's a rescue word. It's a rescue word. It comes from this practice in the ancient Greek and Roman culture of paying a price to free and liberate slaves. So if you lived in that culture, someone that you love might end up as a slave. They might end up in bondage, either because they sold themselves as an indentured servant to, to pay off debts or because there was some war, some battle, and they got captured and they were turned into a slave. So they could end up in bondage. Someone you could love could end up in bondage. However, you, as their loved one, could then come along and purchase their release. The one who had them in bondage was set a ransom price. And once that price was paid, and this is what I want you to really understand, once that price was paid, they were free. They were liberated. If you paid, then they were free. They were no longer a slave. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's telling the Galatians, and he's telling all of us as Christians, that you're no longer under bondage. You're no longer under bondage. The price has been paid. You have been set free from living under the law. You've been set free from trying to work for God's favor, fearing God's condemnation when you fail. You see, think about this. God, in his law, he demanded obedience. We talked about it this morning in the children's story. Didn't plan that, just the way God worked things out this morning. We talked about it. He demanded obedience under the law. And there were blessings for obedience and there were judgments to fall upon us for for our fail to render that obedience. And that's how we all once lived. Under the law. Blessings for obedience, judgment for disobedience. And we were all, it's more on this side, disobedience. But what Paul's telling us here is now God's law demands have been satisfied. Jesus has rendered the perfect obedience that was required and he has also suffered the righteous penalty that was due us through through faith in jesus we are now free we're now free the price has been paid and what that means brothers and sisters is that freedom means that we're no longer living by our own works we're no longer living by our own works as a christian your standing before god is not riding on what you do or don't do See, God doesn't have some big scales up in heaven where when you stand before him one day, you know, he's going to weigh out all the good and the bad and see if your good outweighs your bad. Praise God, that's not the way it works. Especially when the Bible says even our, our good deeds are like filthy rags. We have nothing to put on the good side. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because as a Christian, you're no longer living according to your own works. You're no longer living by your own works. You're no longer living by faith in your own works. Instead, you're living by faith in His. Amen? You're living by faith in His. We live by faith in the finished work of Jesus. We trust that He did keep the law for us. And we rest in the fact that He did take the punishment that our sin deserved. We are the redeemed. We are the redeemed. And that, that new identity changes everything. Let me put it to you this way, brothers and sisters. Being redeemed means that you're no longer defined by your failures and your sin. 
You're no longer defined by your failures and sin. Instead, in God's eyes, you're defined by Christ's success. Take a moment and think about that one. You're, you're not defined by your failure. You're defined by his faithfulness. You're not defined by, by your shame. You're defined by his success. You're not defined by your sin. Instead, you're defined by his righteousness. That's the so what of our redemption. We are liberated from life under the law. We have a new identity. And that's the glory of what hit me Wednesday on the patio when I was on the verge of tears. God reminded me about the reality of who I am in spite of who I am. Who I am in spite of who I am. I am redeemed through Jesus Christ. I am no longer defined in God's eyes by my sin and my failure. I am now defined by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am defined by the covenant faithfulness of the Son. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. The good news that Paul is sharing with us, it doesn't stop there. Our glorious new identity is not simply that we are redeemed, that we are liberated. Paul also tells his readers in verse 5 that we have been adopted. Redeemed and adopted as sons. So here's the thing. We're not just liberated slaves, as, as glorious as that would be, right? We're not just liberated slaves, we're actually slaves who've become sons. From slaves to sons. From slaves to being brought into the family and given all the full rights and blessings of sonship. As one commentator put it, the purpose of the father in sending his son and of the son condescending to be born of woman under the law was that we might not only be delivered from the greatest evil, the judgment due us for our sin, but we might also be crowned with the choicest blessing. Not just delivered from the greatest evil, but then crowned with the choicest blessing. We were brought into the family of God as sons. And this, brothers and sisters, this is huge. This is huge. You see... When Paul describes the reality of our adoption here in verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons, he's not simply speaking of God adopting little children, little boy children into the family. No, he's speaking of us stepping into the rights and the position of a mature son, uh, uh, being adopted as firstborn sons, with all of the blessings that that includes. Again, Remember Paul's opening analogy in this chapter, his cultural comparison. He speaks of the son who is living as a child. And as he's living as a child, he's no different than a slave. He's waiting for that appointed time by his father. And that appointed time by his father is when his father decides, you're mature enough now to receive your inheritance. You're mature enough now to receive the fullness of your inheritance. And Paul, he's saying, just like that, our time has come. That time has come for us. We've been set free from that season of our immaturity a time under the law, and now we stand as mature sons before holy God. We stand as firstborn sons. See, ladies, um, Paul isn't being sexist here. He's not excluding you by saying sons. Instead, by talking about being adopted as sons, He's making a cultural connection to the one in that culture, the firstborn son who was given the inheritance, the position, the honor, the blessing in those households. And Paul is saying that's what we all, men, women, little boys and girls believing in Jesus, that's what we all have. We have been brought into, we've been adopted into that position of the firstborn son. But how? How in the world did that happen? How did that happen? How do we get such a position? Did we get that position by working hard to earn that position? Are we adopted as sons because, you know what, we're the best, we're the brightest, we're the most spiritual folks on the block? Is that how it happened? I hope you all know well enough that the answer to that question is no. (laughs) No, that's not how it happened. So then, how are we adopted as sons? Are we adopted as sons because God simply wanted to give us that position? Is this adoption just a a generous gift of God? Well, yes, God did graciously choose to give it to us. He, from his love, chose to adopt us and make us his own. 
But there's more to it. There's more to it than just a generous gift. You see, this adoption comes to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It was earned for us. It comes to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Look again at the text. Look at the text. Paul says, starting in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, our adoption as sons is intimately connected with Jesus' work as the Son. Jesus as the Son. He has earned all the favor, all the privileges of the firstborn. He has, through his covenant faithfulness, and earned, earned the inheritance, the honor, the blessings. But here's the amazing thing. God, in his amazing, gracious, glorious plan, he has chosen to unite us with Christ so that all those blessings that are really his, the firstborn son, really Christ's, come then to all of those who are in Christ, all of those who are united to Christ. He has chosen to bring, God has chosen to bring us into the sonship of Christ and make us one with him. Paul actually stresses this point back in chapter 3, verse 26. Look at it, chapter 3, verse 26. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you are sons through faith. So through faith in Christ, we are united to Christ, we are in Christ, and that is how we become sons. That's how this happens. That's how this adoption works. It's not that there's a bunch of paperwork, you know, that somebody has to fill out. Nobody needs to have an in-home visit to make sure we're all a good match, we're all a good fit. We simply come into the family. We come into the family through our union with Christ. We are adopted in Christ. And that means in him, in him we stand in the same position that he does. Sometimes on a Sunday morning I get to say things that I'm going, okay, I'm going to say this. I don't know if this is going to hit near as hard as it should. Uh, we're going to be a thousand years in glory and we'll be staggered by this one. In Christ we stand in the same position that he does. Think about that. Think about that. We who were outsiders, outsiders, we who had no rights, no privileges, we were just sinners under judgment. We now stand in the position of the firstborn son. And that means we receive all of the blessings that he does, all of the inheritance, all of the blessings, all of the love, all of the affection of the father. It's all poured out on us. Because we are in the Son. We are adopted as sons. And brothers and sisters, you need to understand this. This is not just some theoretical abstract idea. This isn't just some theological concept that has no connection to our everyday lives. No, this is a reality that God the Father wants you as a Christian to experience. Not just to know, but to experience. That's why Paul writes, look at the text. That's why Paul writes in verse 6. And because you are sons, because this is who you are, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, this adoption that Paul's writing about here, it is not just an objective reality, something that we are given through the work of the son, the position in which we now stand. It's not just an object of reality, it is an object of reality, but, but it is also something that our Heavenly Father wants us to experience. He wants us to feel this in the depths of our being. He wants us to know who we are. And so, so just like the Father sent the Son to accomplish our adoption, Paul tells us here that he sent the Spirit to assure us of our adoption. Take a moment and think with me about this. Realize that there is a Trinitarian work going on here to give you and assure you of your identity. The whole Trinity is working to give you and assure you of your new identity. It's like the Trinity is shouting at us. Don't you see who you are? Don't you see who I made you? 
You're no longer defined by your sin and your failure. You're no longer excluded from fellowship with me and intimacy with me. Don't think of yourself that way anymore. Because you are mine. Triune God is saying this to us. You are mine and I am yours. You are mine and I am yours. And beloved, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking this had to blow the socks off of the Galatians. I mean, think about these folks, these Gentile Christians who were being told, you're just second class. You got to do this and this and this and this to measure up. And Paul says, no, no. The Father himself has given you the Spirit himself to let you know that you are in the Son himself. You are not second class. You are sons of God. And this is true of every Christian. This is true of every Christian. And again, the Father wants us to experience this. Not just to know this, but to experience this. So he has sent the Spirit of his Son. And I think it's interesting that Paul here uses this language, the Spirit of his Son. And I think Paul is describing the Holy Spirit this way because he's reminding us that it's the Spirit who points us to Jesus. Amen? It's the Spirit who points us to the Son. It's the Spirit who mediates the presence of the Son. And it's the Spirit who gives us assurance that we are in the Son. He assures us. This is amazing. He assures us by giving us the same sense of intimacy that Jesus himself knew with the Father. Look again at the text. God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. That should be familiar to us. Somebody else spoke that way, didn't they? Who spoke that way? The Lord Jesus in the garden. There in the garden, this was Abba, Father. This was his cry of intimacy with the Father. This was his cry of absolute dependence upon the Father. This was a cry that sprang up from Christ's unshakable understanding of his own identity before the Father. He could use a word as intimate as Abba, Father, Daddy, one that I love and who I know loves me. If you're a parent, you know this cry, don't you? You know this cry. You know what it means when your children call you Daddy, Mommy. Sometimes it's a cry of excitement, Daddy's home! Sometimes it's a cry of desperation. Please, mommy, please. Sometimes it's just a word of affection. Daddy, mommy, I love you. But no matter in the context, no matter what context it's in which it's said, we all know that this is a word of relationship, right? This is a word of relationship. It's a word of special relationship. Not everyone can call you mommy or daddy. Only those who belong to you in a very special way. And the Father wants us to know that we belong to him in a very special way. We can call him Abba. Abba. And brothers and sisters, he wants us to know this. Again, not just here, but in the depths of our being. Paul says God has sent sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The Father wants us to take root, this to take root in our hearts. What does that mean, though, into our hearts? Well, biblically, the the heart is not simply the seat of emotions like Hallmark or Valentine's Day want to present it. Instead, the heart is the deepest part of us. It's the real you. It's the real you. Commentator William Hendrickson, he describes the, the Bible's teaching of the heart this way. He writes, the heart controls the entire personality. It is the core and center of man's being, man's inmost self. It is the hub from which radiates all of the spokes of his existence, the fulcrum of feeling and faith, as well as the mainspring of words and actions. In other words, it is the center and seedbed of you. It's the center and seedbed of you. And Paul says that the Father has sent the Spirit there, in the depths of us, 
to cry out in the depths of us and let us know who we are. He wants us to know that deep down intimacy, that heart cry, Abba, Father. He wants us to know this because this is who we are. This is who we are. This is who we are. We are not defined. We are not defined by sin and failure. We are defined by the sonship that is ours in Christ. And that we experience in the depths of our being through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need to see who we are. We need to see who we are in spite of who we are. We need to see who we are in spite of who we are. And so then Paul says to his readers in verse 7, so you're no longer a slave. Don't think of yourself that way. You're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is who you are. And you need to live out of who you are. But even as I say that to you this morning, and I don't feel like I'm saying anything new to you guys this morning. This is who we are. We need to live out of who we are. Let's just confess that sometimes we struggle with that. Amen? Sometimes we struggle with that. And we struggle. We struggle because there are moments and there are days and there are entire seasons when we doubt who we are. We doubt who we are. Those moments when our our sin and failure overwhelm us. Those days when we feel beat down and worn out. Those seasons when everything feels dry and empty. And we start to wonder. Right? We start to wonder about who we are. We start to let our struggles with sin or the effects of other people's sin towards us define us. Maybe like the Gentile Christians in Galatia, maybe we go through seasons where we feel like outsiders. Feel like outsiders. We look around, we look at in the church, and everybody seems to have way more together than we do. And so we start to wonder, do we really belong? Do we really even call ourselves a Christian? Or maybe we're having struggles in our marriage. And it seems far, way far from what we ever hoped our marriage would be. And it just seems like day after day, struggle after struggle, sin upon sin upon sin. And we start to see ourselves through the lens of that marriage. Like it defines us. Or maybe we struggle with fear, or with anxiety, or with anger, or with lust. And we battle, but we're not always victorious. And so we begin to doubt that God really accepts us. That he really loves us. That he is really our Abba that we can cry out to from the deepest part of our being. And we fall into this trap of thinking we have to get our act together, we have to try harder before we can really have anything to do with this holy God. But Paul's answer is not try harder. His answer is not try harder. Instead, it's see who you are. See who you are. It's seeing who you are through the gracious plan of the Father, accomplished by the glorious work of the Son, and applied to you by the very real presence of the Holy Spirit. It's see who you are through the saving work of the Holy Triune God. And that's what God used to minister to my heart this last Wednesday. That's how he met me in my avalanche moment, my on the verge of despair moment. In a quiet moment of prayer, he reminded me of who I am and who we all are in Jesus Christ. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are redeemed. You are redeemed. You are no longer under the judgment and condemnation of the law. Instead, you are in the family. You are in the family You have the full blessing and experience of sonship. That's who you are. That's who you are. And brothers and sisters, that's the reality that we need to live out of each and every day. 
We need to learn how to live joyfully, live out of who we are in spite of who we are. We need to learn to live joyfully out of who we are in spite of who we are. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we praise you that it's not all riding on us. (laughs) I thank you for the way that through your word, by your spirit, you do expose our, our sin, our shame. You break us down. You remind us that our hope is not in us. And then I praise you for the way that as we are broken down by the reality of our sin and shame, you build us up in you. You help us to see who we are in spite of who we are. That we are the redeemed. That we are the sons and daughters of God. That we are those who are justified by faith alone in you. That we are those who are secure eternally. Not because we work hard to keep it. But because you've done all the work for us. And Lord Jesus, I pray that by your spirit... He would help us to learn, as Paul's going to lay out for us as we continue through this letter, to learn to live out of who we are. Not not selfishly trying to guard our pride, our our wills and wants, so fearful that, that we would be exposed. All those wrong identity ideas that lead us into sin. But that we would learn to live out of who we are. Sons and daughters of God, the redeemed, those who are filled with the Spirit, that we would walk in the Spirit, we would manifest the fruit of the Spirit because this is who we are. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this great salvation. Put the roots of our faith down deeper into it that we would truly be people who rejoice in who we are through you. These things we pray in your name. Amen.